0: Podcast Network Asia.
1: Hi, this is Michael Waits, and welcome back to the Asia Tech Podcast. Don't laugh at me, on which we discuss all things Asia and all things tech. Today, I'm joined by Hayden Hughes, a co founder and CEO at Alpha Impact. Hayden, it's great to have you on the show. How are you doing today?
0: I'm uh, doing very well. Thank you so much for inviting me to be here. Really excited.
1: It's my pleasure. Look, before we jump into some of the main topics, I want to get a little little bit of your background for context.
0: Sure. So um, yeah, I'm originally Canadian. I consider myself to be a startup founder. Uh, This is the business I'm working on now It's my fourth startup. Uh, So I dropped out of university when I was young and started, of all things, a window cleaning business, a residential window cleaning business in Vancouver. And it We expanded it and franchised it throughout the Western part of Canada and then exited the business. Um, Later went to law school and um, that's where I uh, started understanding that I didn't actually want to be a lawyer, but it took me four years to get there. So wrapped up uh, with the law degree and a strong passion not to actually become a lawyer and ended up working at venture capital for a couple of years. And then I was working on what I thought was a big transaction, uh, but was actually not and there were some guys that I came across that had done an ICO in 2017 and okay. raised tens of millions of dollars in, in like minutes on this public sale. And I thought, well, if those guys can raise 10 times more than me right. in 99% less time, this might be an industry that I should start to look at more seriously. Uh, so I was recruited and joined. Uh, an investment bank that was focusing on uh, cryptocurrencies at that time. They moved me across to Singapore for a, quote, three-month trial. And uh, I decided after the three months I wanted to stay. So, And I've been in Singapore ever since. So um, that's me in a nutshell.
1: I love these stories. So you went to law school, took you four years to figure out you demonstrably did not want to be a lawyer. I interviewed a guy yesterday. I had him on another one of my shows and he studied mechanical engineering And ended up working at a a VC company. And he said his brother studied economics in college and ended up working at an engineering company. It was just all upside down. That's so funny. I loved it.
0: That's so funny. I
1: want to talk to you about dropping out of school. So you kind of ran past that like it was meaningless or not that important, but you went to UBC, right? So the University of British Columbia. Yeah. Which is arguably one of the best universities in Canada. Yeah.
0: It's up there. It's up up there. there.
1: Yeah, I looked at the rankings. I'm not just pulling this out of thin air.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's, what, what was it's it like?
1: Like, was your family happy? I know you were running this other business, but was like, was your family happy? Or were they like, yeah, it's fine, hey, and just drop out of college and focus on the window business? Do you know what I mean?
0: No, they were extremely upset. My dad sent me to a psychiatrist, and I basically, at that point, I mean, my family loves me and supports me, but they were not that happy about the situation. And uh, I, I said, look, this is probably something that's going to be one semester. And I i really, we'd had a very successful summer and I needed to keep it going. And right. I mean, effectively the business that we were running was like a wage arbitrage business. So like we figured out that people were willing to pay between $50 and $80 for one hour of window cleaning. Uh, and this is many years ago in Canada. So, And we figured out that the market rate for paying those people was, uh, you know, students, $10 to $15 an hour. So right. the input required to produce that arbitrage was not um you know we weren't like tesla or spacex building these complicated systems right. that if they fall apart people die it's like right the capex wasn't high either right exactly exactly so um and you know the the start of that business was really there were three of us i came in as a co-founder we really just would do the window washing in the daytime and then at night we'd go knock on doors kind of in our neighborhood. And yeah. if we really didn't have any ambition to make it a big business, we really just wanted to have beer money for the weekends. And we quickly discovered that there was a demand for this, you know, the brand we had, it was green, we were right. eco-friendly, carbon neutral, uh, and we were run by students. And that was, I think, a you know, a kind of a branding story that really resonated with people. So... We'd had a good summer. I wanted to keep going. We had a whole bunch of stuff on. I said, well, I'll just take this semester to really see things through until Christmas. And uh, boy, it just took off. So no, my family was not at all.
1: And I like to bring this up because there are these myths about entrepreneurs, right? Probably starting in our lifetime with, I'm a little bit older than you, but with Bill Gates You know, the the big quote about him was dropped out of Harvard, right? The reality was that his family was really wealthy and that there was no risk for him dropping out of Harvard because he would just go back to Harvard if what he was working on, which was Microsoft, failed. And the same thing for Zuckerberg, who also dropped out of Harvard. It's part of the myth-making of, like, successful entrepreneurs. But for regular people, and I'm presuming you're one of them, when you drop out of college, there's an intense family issue in the background. Like, wait a second. (laughs) And again, I brought up the fact that UBC was a great school because you must have been a smart kid. So why would you give this up? But there's this entrepreneurial bug in people that just goes, wait, this is working, no?
0: Yeah. I guess the way that I looked at it was that I could generate, uh, in terms of personal income, like I was, this is 2006, I was 21. I could generate a level of personal income that was probably where I would have expected to be five years after graduation. Right. Um, and at that point I was, I guess, two and a half to three years from graduation. So in my mind, I was like eight years ahead of where I would have been. And so I thought if I can do that with just picking this thing up and working at it for a couple months over the summer, imagine what I could do if I really hustle hard and did this for many years. So right. from my perspective, I had found a way to, um, to get ahead of what I otherwise could have expected. And I guess another part of it was I didn't like working for people. It's like
1: it's the worst I, possible just, thing in the world.
0: Yeah, but some people aren't built to follow orders. And I, every job I'd had, I thought it's like you you work for someone, and you think, geez, this guy is really not the one I want to work for. You find someone else and find another business. And all the businesses that I worked for, it, there was something right. Yeah. So I just felt like let's I want to do it myself.
1: But once you understand how to generate revenue from zero, that that can be applicable almost any vertical, if you understand the vertical well enough. In other words, did you, did you get transferable skills from building total window clean and home services that you can apply still?
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that the challenge is for, it's not just making money because it's, I think, relatively easy to make Enough money to sustain yourself, but the challenging part is how do you go, you know, from what Peter Thiel would call zero to one. And, yeah,
1: better said. Um,
0: and look, I I don't think that window cleaning is something that I was truly revolutionizing. I mean, hey, I was doing cool stuff, but it wasn't like so. I think you know, scaling a business and going from something where it's a it's a side hustle for you into something where you're really compounding the numbers and really making an impact, right. and not only on yourself but on the people around you. Cause I like to think that if you have a team and employees that help you, then you should take them on the journey with you. I mean, really, it comes down to allocation of scarce resources. There's never enough, you know, time, money, capital, technology, resources. So it's it's how do you deploy those resources in a way that's going to give you the maximum return? And it sounds very kind of formulaic, but you know, what I look at is making money, you know, for a little business, I've had many businesses. And, you know, when I was in law school, I would sell textbooks and study notes and all kinds of stuff, but I could never make that into a $10 million a year business. Cause it just like, doesn't scale doesn't the scale. level of effort required to double that business is an additional hundred percent. So right. it's really about how can you scale so that you're for every incremental, addi- like if I'm increasing my effort by 10%, can I get 20% more productivity? Right. And ultimately I decided in that business, it would be very difficult to scale. Uh, so that's why I decided to sell the business and move on and go do something else. But I think that the, the hustle of being a solo, uh, not a solo founder, but being a, you know, in a small business, you have to think about these situations very carefully. And yeah, so I think there's some transferability, but I think it's really like, how do you scale and how do you go from starting to, to really scaling up? And I mean, that's something that I feel like I'm still a beginner at, and I don't think I'm an expert at all on that side of things.
1: Fair enough. Was there some sense when you, the business grew, you were self sustaining, you were employing bunches of people? I think you said you franchised it and then you sold it, right? Yeah. Was there some point where your dad was like, sorry about that?
0: No, I mean, you know, I think to be honest, I didn't really tell my family that much about what I was doing because I was like, running this business and they had, no, they just knew I was washing windows and yeah. I don't think I had really said, Hey, I'm, I'm running this business. It's going really well. Like here's where we got to last week. And here's where I think we're going to get to next month. Okay. So I think for them, it was more of like a shock where I was like, Hey, um, <laughs> I'm going to drop out of university. So it was kind of a surprise yeah, yeah. when I kind of explained the reasoning and you know, when they saw what happened over the subsequent years, I think they got it. But I think in the initial piece, it was just a shock that I was, stopping to do something other than
1: study. Yeah. When I when I got accepted to college, I had a full scholarship to go study economics. And I told my parents that I wasn't going to go. Yeah. And I was going to open up a hoagie shop in Philadelphia. And they were just like apoplectic. They were just like beside themselves. They were like, no fucking way. And still to today, I still take shit for it. But anyway, that's why I wanted to ask you about it. Because I think it's a common story, right? You feel like you got something that's going to be sustainable. And they're just like, this is the wrong path. Anyway, I want to talk about alpha impact. Sure. What is it? Why is this relevant? Why did you start it?
0: Yeah, I've been working in crypto for four years, and my experience in crypto has been that I've always, I've always felt like I didn't understand what was happening in the markets, and I didn't like how can I develop that skill to know what's going to happen next. And so I've always been very fascinated by the idea of talking to people who are smarter than me and who know more than me. And I joined uh, this accelerator, Antler, last year and crypto was just kind of getting started again in terms of the recent bull market right and i met uh, my co-founder austin and he is a fantastic crypto trader he's like he does the technicals and the fundamentals and he would do hundreds of hours of analysis into each token and had some some very strong views which 99 percent of which have proven to be true and he was like so deep in the weeds on the, you know, the numbers and the technical points of support and resistance and the thesis behind each project and the tokenomics and the release schedules. And and I was like, well, I'm lazy. I don't want to do all that work. I just want to copy him. Right. So I started sitting beside him uh, really just as a way to learn to improve my own trading. And what I realized was that if I had wanted to duplicate that process, uh, and Austin's journey was very similar. He taught himself how to trade crypto. But totally self-taught, he didn't have an expert that, uh, you know, he's not the type of person that would just ask someone and then take what they say at face value and do it. But I'm, uh, I guess, more of a risk taker. So Interesting. he taught himself how to trade and his approach was, well, he wanted to learn. So he went on YouTube, he went on TradingView, he went on uh, Twitter and tried to understand crypto trading. And what he found was that the, the people that claim to be experts at crypto are really just good at building a following on YouTube, right? Right, And uh, by the way, nothing nothing wrong with the people who, uh, by the way, Asia Tech Podcast is great. and We love them. But I don't think there's anything wrong with being a domain expert and building an online following. But what I'm saying is the specific brand of crypto, quote unquote, domain experts are people who... Some of them are probably good, but the reality is if you're a good crypto trader, you have absolutely no incentive to go build an online following because you figured out how to make money, right? Also,
1: let's be clear about this too, right? The reason why you don't hear Wall Street traders getting on TV or having a YouTube channel is because they're highly regulated as well. The crypto space doesn't have the same level of regulation, so not the same level of, yeah, of care and the things that you can and can't say.
0: That's true. Well. Yeah, I mean, even here in Singapore, where we have, I would argue, the most uh, one of the most advanced frameworks for regulating cryptocurrencies, right. there's still no license for advisory advising people. So if I get on YouTube and I say, hey, you should buy Tesla at this price and you should uh, put your limit order at that price and exit here. And I think you're going to get this amount of profit. <laughs> that is a regulated activity. You cannot yeah. do that. That's You need to have a disclaimer.
1: You, but, yeah, you, you can say that actually, but you have to say this is not investment advice and I'm not licensed to give investment advice. Yeah.
0: I mean, I think the permissibility of what you could say would be different in each place, but there would be some jurisdictions I'm sure where you would, if you're giving investment advice and then just saying, this is not investment advice, you'd still get, uh, but anyway, um, (laughs) (laughs) in crypto, we, we don't have that. And so there's this guys that and gals that have figured out how to trade crypto effectively. And they like, why would they go on YouTube and explain to you for free they don't care about building a following because they've figured out how to how to trade crypto. So what we've seen is that there's this group of real experts. And Austin, my co-founder, is one of them. And I've become like a little mini expert. I'm like 10% as good as other people are, that have this ability to trade crypto and they're just printing money. And so then there's this group of people who, and this is the Antler program, you know, we did lots of validation and right. the feedback we got was. Oh my god this is amazing. When can you start? Can we send you money right now? Can I wire you 25k? Can you get started tomorrow? I really want to get in. And so we built the business very slowly but the idea was that there's this massive um and you know we're really focused on the 85% of people who are not yet in crypto. Right. This like crypto is just getting started if you ask the average person on the street. No idea. Uh, most people have like heard of crypto but a lot of people haven't invested yet it's 85%. So how do you grow the market? Well you make it accessible for that 85% by giving them the ability to choose an investment that works for themselves. So that's the kind of thesis. So it's a copy trading model.
1: So how do you get the right people to follow? In other words, you mentioned before, right, that if you have if you're really good at this, there's no reason for you to have people follow you or for you to make a big point about how good you are. Now there are some reasons for it. If 85% of the world is not involved, only 15% of the people are and only 5% of them are good. You run the risk, and we used to talk about this on the trading desk, that if you talk about your trade, you're talking your own position, and the likelihood that people will follow you then will maybe move your trade in the right direction merely because you're talking about it. How do you get the best traders on the platform? Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's a a really great question, and I think there are a number of different strategies and something that people often think is like, oh, well, these strategies, if you bring more people in, then the strategy will be gone. But what we've seen, I mean, this crypto market is so inefficient. So, I mean, we have, uh, I mean, there's guys in our network who we've had relationships with for many times, people who I've dealt with professionally, counterparties uh, from trading firms, some of our investors. And we're talking about people that run uh, trading teams, trading desks, people that are just kind of like, you know, stay at home dads and they trade on the computer when they're not feeding the baby. And, uh, they've, they've figured it out. Right. And so we have this relationship with, um, I would say there's 15, I think they're all guys. So I'm correct in saying that they're guys. And some of them are running massive, uh, multi-billion dollar trading desks at large firms. Some of them are just kind of stay at home, do it yourselfers and everything in between. And so we start with those people. And the, the real challenge for us is not let's find the best, highest returning trader. It's because not everyone wants a high return and a higher level of risk, right? Some people want, especially here in Singapore, some people want uh, low risk and consistent returns. So we're designing our business. It's a social media network that people can like and share and follow and all that stuff. But the core kind of function for customers is that there's going to be this leaderboard and the leaderboard will be able to sort traders to follow by return, but then you can also sort by monthly drawdowns. Like, what if you could find a trader who their worst month was only 0.1% down? So you can sort by drawdowns. You can sort by what's called in the industry a sharp ratio, sharp ratios, uh, which yeah. is a, a measure of risk-adjusted returns. I know you know what it is, but uh, for the viewers or listeners. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, the idea with the sharp ratio is well, if a stock is volatile, but the return is very, very much higher than other stuff, you're trying to measure, is that volatility worth it? So what is the expected return per unit of volatility? And so that's a really powerful tool that portfolio managers use. They don't think about returns. They think about risk adjusted returns. So we're trying to build a system to give everyone the same access to investment strategies, whether they have, you know, $25 or $25 million, we don't care. And so we charge a fee. We share the fee with the top trader and traders are really excited by this. Uh, We have institutional clients and we're building up an institutional business as well. So, Uh, We're kind of covering the, you know, the retail side of things and the institutional side.
1: What was it like? I want to get back to this in a second specifically, but what was it like participating in the Antler program? Was it super intense? Like, how long is it? I forget the the term of
0: it. It's, uh, it's three months.
1: Was it super intense? Yeah. Did you know Austin before you got there? Or was it really one of these speed dating things where you're like, I don't know who I'm going to be a founder with, but that guy looks like he's kind of cool. Like, how did that work? Yeah,
0: no, I, I had met him before uh, socially. And we talked a little bit and talked a little bit about crypto. I mean, we weren't bros. We were just acquaintances. Yep. So I knew I had some re- frame of reference for the fact that, you know, he was a smart guy and he was talking about crypto. The year before, and and you know knew what he was doing, and he's amazing with technology, and has this ability to uh, distill complex technical topics. And he's now leading a massive team of developers. And I'm, you know, that if you could ask me what is the one thing in business you never want to do, you you just want someone else to manage. I never want to talk to developers. Like <laughs> in my mind, putting my like business, what I might call business logic or commercial way of thinking about things right. into instructions that can be understood by developers i'll give myself a zero out of ten i'm just not capable of because what developers want is like i'm not gonna you know show a video but i'm in the room right now looking at the launch like the the roadmap and all the stuff and like what developers want is like a list of tasks if you could write down each individual task on a, a post-it note and just leave that pile of post-it notes somewhere but like i don't have time to write friggin' post-it notes and like I say, I want to circle what kind of circle. Well, I don't know. It's someone else needs to think about these details. So he had this ability to kind of, I mean, he led massive technical teams at banks for 15 years. So he's like perfect co-founder. I don't have to talk to the developers. I mean, I enjoy saying hi and hanging out in the office, but not so much on the like instructing part. So I didn't join Antler looking for a co-founder or an idea. I mean, I was just kind of like, I wasn't really sure what to do next. And, uh, I kind of wanted to build something and I had some ideas about, actually I wanted to build an education business. I have one of my other companies as a tutoring company for law students in New Zealand. And oh, right. I had some ideas about uh, doing some stuff in the kind of Asian educational market. And so, you know, actually explored that quite heavily. And then, and then the crypto bug came knocking and uh, we, I started realizing that there was this big opportunity here that we just kind of jumped in.
1: Do you wanna know how I collaborate with some of the best brands in the world at Asia Tech Podcast? I use Podmetrics. This is the best way to connect to your favorite brands and monetize your podcast. If you are a podcaster, you can sign up now at podmetrics.co and use the referral code AsiaTechPodcast, all one word, to get full control of your show's monetization, regardless of your show's size. And if you're a brand, and want to collaborate with the Asia Tech Podcast, head over to advertiser.podmetrics.co, it's spelled like it sounds, and sign up now. I love talking to people that go through the Antler program. Everybody kind of sees it in a different way. And I'm starting to figure out, because I think when it first started, people would go in kind of blind, you know, like I work it some insurance company, but I really hate it and I just want to do a startup because it feels really fancy. I'll join Antler because I have the three months and I can afford it. And then you go there and do that speed dating thing where you meet a founder. And now what I think is happening, just based on some anecdotal stories that I've heard, is that because the training there is so good, right? And because the exposure is great and because the energy is good, people go in together. I don't know if you and Austin went in together, but I've spoken to the people in Australia and in a lot of the programs there and in Singapore. And they say, yeah, kind of, I... Actually, my co-founder and I didn't meet there. We met beforehand and went in.
0: Well, it's been amazing. I mean, I'm, I'm an advisor for Antler as well, and I've been an yeah. advisor since 2018. And, and just watching the growth and the journey, I remember early on when I became an advisor, the quality of founders, I think, has really increased as well. Sure. I remember it didn't happen often, but in the first cohort that I was advising, there were some founders who I would meet and I would think, geez, I have no idea what that like if this is really the right person you You just leave yeah i mean there was some part of the antler program is they start with a massive group of people and the the group gets smaller right so i probably was just too early in the piece and i met the wrong maybe the founder that was about to leave anyway (laughs) but there were some that were like trying to solve kind of charity based problems where there was no profit motive and if we're venture investors then you need to invest in some kind of profit seeking activity but anyway Watching the growth over the years, uh, especially here in Singapore, where the kind of base of operations is, and Magnus, uh, Magnus Grimland, who's one of our advisors for for our company, you know, he's, he's fantastic and just really knows how to build a great team around them. So it's been great kind of watching Antler grow and then also watching some of the portfolio companies grow. And then obviously now come full circle and I am one of the portfolio companies. So I think we're only the third crypto company in the portfolio and the other two have gone on to become super successful. So, you know, we're under pressure to live up to the the example that's been set and uh, we're excited.
1: I want to go back to Alpha Impact. One of the first things you see on your website Right. Besides copy a trader, which we've already covered, is we do not touch your funds. Yeah. Why does anybody care about this? Like, why is this important?
0: You know, when I think about the the crypto landscape, there are a number of platforms and businesses offering to solve this problem. So let's take a step back. So if you were to go back to 2017, 2018, the problem that we had in crypto was that it was hard to get in. You would have money in your bank account, dollars or yen or renminbi or whatever. And there were very few places to go to actually exchange your dollars into crypto. So the exchanges over the past three to four years have solved that problem. There's now a credit card plugin. as there's, there's everything, right? So that access problem has been solved. And so then, then, what's the next problem? The next problem is, well, how do you like how do you figure out what to do, right? So you get Bitcoin. It goes up a hundred percent in a month, as it's about to over the next four weeks. Um, <laughs> you heard it here first. I mean, I don't know what our price target is but i'm i'm feeling very positive uh um, yeah. yeah i mean i think it dipped so we're recording this on the 25th of may it dipped to uh to 30,000 earlier in this week or in the past seven days and yep. it looks like it's on its way back up to, to 50 but i think the so the access problem's been solved and so the like what do you how do you manage your investment problem is now the one that's trying to be solved and so we've seen there's a number of platforms that try to solve this problem and the approach that a lot of them have is that it's like automated, number one, and that it's custodial. So you have to send your money, number two. So, you know, when I look at this crypto industry, this this industry is full of scams and platforms that are like, I can look at it and say this is should not be trusted. And Ponzi schemes and things that promise guaranteed returns. And I just think there's so much crap out there that, like, frankly, I don't trust and no one should trust. So how do we make this a trustless Scenario or something that the customer doesn't actually need to trust us. Well, number one, we're not the one making the investment strategy. We don't care what I mean. We hope people make good choices, but the thesis that we're that we have is that people want to have the ability to choose an investment that's right for them. It's not about, hey, Michael, here's the best investment strategy. I don't care who you are or what you want. This is the best. Buy this one. Right. That's it. Um, it's about, well, you know what? you can pick and choose. Maybe you want some of this and some of that. So um, our thesis is number one, to give people choice and give it access to those different investing styles. And number two, to make it trust free. So what that means is we develop, we have this technology. Um, we get what's called an API key. So we get access to our customer's exchange account. Um, but all we get access to do is execute trades from their account. So what that means is if, if you're our customer and, uh, I'm sure you've signed up for the beta at alphaimpact.fi, but if not, we'll send you an invite after and you can sign up. But so what that means is the customer gives us the ability to execute transactions from their own exchange account. So you keep funds in your own exchange account. You give us a limited permission to trade from your account. So the money's always sitting in your account. Whatever happens, it's still your account and you can kick us off at any time. So that's the kind of thesis we had.
1: Got it. What do you, how do you view... um, platforms like crystal.ai, right, which are trying to create these again, things that people can follow. Yeah, K R I S T A L l.ai and they have traders that come in that propose sort of, you know, differentiated investment theses, trade them and then try to get people to follow them as well. I think what you're doing is different because it's purely it's purely crypto.
0: Yeah, I mean I think the we're moving from a world where um wealth management is not delivered from you know there's a disintermediation of financial services so what what we've seen is that you know in the old days you had one bank one credit card one mortgage all from the same bank right and you had a relationship with the bank now um you know especially here in asia banks are are segmenting clients into buckets of of how worthwhile it is for those banks to engage and unless you're in the very top bucket in terms of wealth you really don't get that level of service, right? So, yeah, there are a number of platforms that try to offer services to uh, effectively retail, but what they're they're all hiring, um, you know, RMs to to bring in lots of AUM. So right. I see that uh, financial services is something that uh, customers or investors, whatever you want to call them, can pick and choose, right? And I think it makes absolute sense that there are these platforms out there, and you know, crypto is one that I think is interesting because it is something that is very poorly understood. You know, I've seen just in the past 24 hours, I'm in a number of group chats with with people from the banking industry and they're getting research memos about crypto from asset managers who don't understand crypto. Right. And last night, and honestly, I'm like exhausted. It's not like I'm sitting at my desk ex- excited to do more research every day. But I saw one last night that upset me so much. I actually spent an hour debunking and put charts and all that stuff to show that what this person from One River uh, or had written was mistaken. Uh, And it had to do with exchange inflows. And they said that when exchange inflows occur, that means people are getting ready to sell. But, you know, if you actually look at the data going back eight and a half years, exchange inflows sometimes are when people are selling. But usually that's just before the bottom of a market. So it's a bullish signal, not a bearish signal. And there's this narrative that, you know, now the Bitcoin has dropped 50 percent, this is the start of the bear market. I mean, we'll see. Um, I'm certainly willing to to bet that that's not the case, but there's just so much misinformation. And so few traditional firms understand and offer crypto products. In my view, it's really anyone's game to become the digital wealth manager for the crypto era. So obviously starting with crypto and then moving on from there.
1: Look, I would make the case that very few analysts at uh, traditional investment banks even understand the stock market. If you understand the way research works, and this is from a guy who operated there for 20-something years, the, the, the way research works. I mean, there's a big, if you go back and look at MIFID and MIFID two, there's a reason why research got separated from trading, right? Because there was yeah. just so much conflict of interest there. And, you know, you said before that there are scams and stuff in the crypto world. Those, are, those scams are just transferred from the traditional investment banking and trading world. These, they're not, these are not yeah. new scam inventions. They've existed on Wall Street for 100 years, Yeah. Yeah. To be clear. Yeah. Yeah. So do your same due diligence that you would do in the traditional finance world, in the crypto world, and you should be okay, actually at some level.
0: Yeah. And and I think there's an element of psychology that makes us feel special when we invest in something and it goes right. And it's this, this prophecy of, well, I got it right last time. And therefore next time I'm going to get it right. And that's a hundred percent the wrong way to think. I mean, I remember starting working in crypto in 2017 I would have a one-hour lunch break and I would trade. I would just get food and eat at my desk and I would trade and I would make 10 or 15% every single day for months, months and months and months. And I mean, I thought that I was amazing and gifted, but in a bull market, (laughs) it's easy for everyone to be right. And so I think, and I didn't have any risk management. I mean, I wasn't trading leverage, but I just was buying, you know, I saw that tokens tended to go up 50% a day if there was something that had gone up. 18%, 18 percent it was likely to go to 50 so I would just buy that and boom there's my 10 percent so it's very easy I think for investors especially new investors who let's say they buy Bitcoin and if you bought the dip I think you'd do very well and by the way I could be wrong on that um but sure. you know we've traded and I've I've bought more but I have bought uh, a lot of crypto and it's just so easy to feel like, oh, I've got it right. Therefore, I'm going to keep getting it right. And so I think as investors, we have to train ourselves to to ignore those feelings. And it's it's a very hard thing to do, right? And so having someone else to help manage that risk for you, I think, is really important. So that's kind of part of our why we're building this.
1: Agreed. And I want to make, a, again, I always like to make equivalencies to things that people understand. If you go back and look at a chart of Amazon, right? So go to bigcharts.com and listeners can do the same thing. Type in AMCN, look at the chart, and then just go for all data, right? So it goes back to 1997 and 1998, and it's literally a straight line to the right until essentially 2010. That's 12 years. But if you then scan into that and go right back to the beginning, you'll see a chart that looks very similar actually to Bitcoin, yeah. <laughs> where you had days where it just went up so much, and then days where it crashed down and people said it's going to go bankrupt. The idea is if you take a long-term view on a real investment, now I understand that crypto is different from a trading perspective, but if you were trading internet stocks back then, you saw some very similar movements that you're seeing in Bitcoin today. You saw stocks go down 35%. You saw them go up 100% in a day, particularly if an analyst said you know, eBay's going to 400 or Amazon's going to 400 and it's trading at 90. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. So this stuff's not new.
0: Yeah, and I think the the volatility is just, it's just part of it. But Amazon, you're right, I think went down. It was like Bitcoin. I think there was a, a 70 plus, I think, I want to say 73% drop in the 2000 period after the dot com bubble burst. And there were people that were laughing at Bezos for, uh, for running his business the way that it, you know, it's like, I remember seeing a segment recently, uh, an interview from 1999 talking about the valuation. Uh, and at that time they were a bookstore, right? It was like an online bookstore and they were trying to compare it to the valuation in terms of other bookstores. Right. Uh, and which like Barnes of course, and Noble, or yeah, yeah, which we realize now Amazon is like nothing to do with books, right? It's like, that's no. a tiny part of their business. But I remember, uh, reading that or, or seeing the video and, you think, gee, some people on the outside just don't get it. So we're in that kind of similar era where I think yeah. that things are happening in the in the crypto world that a lot of people don't understand. And it's important to uh, you know try to manage risk and not go crazy.
1: I agree. Look, before I let you go, I want to talk about your recently announced capital raise. I know we've been at this for a while. Sure. But what did you do? You raised like $3.1 million. It's not a round number. So I'm curious, obviously, why it's that number and also what you're going to do with it. Yeah.
0: Yeah, uh, we decided to, so we went through the Antler program, we got a small amount of funding, uh, decided to raise capital, ended up talking to some VCs. And, you know, it's it's tough to raise equity financing, I think, even in a bubble. And I think crypto has a bubble every four years. So it's okay for me to call it that. You know, we're not building, our business is not a bubble. But from the outside world's perspective, you know, in a bubble, everything kind of looks that way. But so we talked to some VCs, and uh, we had uh, one VC who I won't name, and they made us an offer to invest. in. they actually wanted to take our entire equity round, um, which was going to be just under a million dollars. And we felt that they were the right partner. And they really were just a really awesome value add investor. And they they don't make a million investments a year. They were really going to work hard to help and add value to us as a portfolio company. But you know, we had the chance to, to do this token. And at a certain point in time, um, we looked at it and we said, well, what are we really doing? Like, what is our business really? And what our business really is, it's a way for small investors and big investors to effectively copy trading strategies and we charge a small fee, right? And so the fee that we would charge on a $20 transaction and then share part of that fee with the top trader, you're talking about like cents, right? So we looked at, okay, well, what is, how are we going to manage the payments? Because there's, theoretically thousands of payments right and we thought well traditional banking system is is obviously very slow and uh, with blockchain we can have this token that we can manage all these payments on a blockchain the other great thing about blockchain is that we have this amazing transaction monitoring right so like I can see if you send me Bitcoin I can see, If that Bitcoin has been flagged as, hey, this person has committed, this Bitcoin was stolen from an exchange. So it just made sense for us to do a token. And uh, we found some great investors uh, who were willing to back us. And uh, I guess the rest is history. So we decided to do the token uh, capital raise instead of raising equity fundraising. And, um, you know, it's just a more frictionless process and it gives us more freedom. So we're still... I, th- I would say open to raising equity financing, but it's just a question of how do we structure it and how do we scale the investment. And yes, yeah, so we've raised uh, three point one. The round was led by Genesis Block Ventures, Lunex Ventures here in Singapore, SMO Capital, uh, Axia Eight, crypto, There's many others. So we had a couple of great investors that came in. Our lead investor is actually anonymous, so I can't say who they are. But they're a <laughs> let's just say a high frequency trading firm slash market making firm and uh, They were really great as well. We can't say their name, but uh, yeah, so we had some great support.
1: So you did not do an equity raise. You did it. Can you explain to people what a token raise is?
0: Yeah. So the way a token raise works is that you effectively, you're creating a token and you're selling a portion of those tokens at a discount to investors who come in now. Um, So we're launching the token at 10 cents and we were selling the token to these investors at 5 cents. So the expectation is that they get an in- increased uh, return on their investment. And we're actually launching on June 3rd, which is quite soon. So our ticker will be impact, which I think is really cool. So for me, it's been an exercise in um, really building this business as a platform. And, uh, you know, this token is a great way for our customers to, they can stake our token. Their fees will go down if they deposit tokens uh, they get access to a lot of the great functionalities that we have. So we're building, uh, they'll have access to technical analysis and fundamental analysis and sentiment analysis. They can follow more traders. They can reduce their fees. The trader can stake the token, which means they deposit the token. They get a higher share of the fees. If they become a super trader, then they we actually take their profile to more customers. So we have institutional clients as well. So we're building an ecosystem where there are incentives uh, and we're using those incentives to basically incentivize people to use the platform. So the first version of the platform is launching in June. It's going to be signals mining. So that's effectively a massive trading competition for three different types of traders. And so we have the, the shrimp Trader competition for people that have, uh, I would say, less than ten thousand. Then there's the lobsters, ten to ninety-nine thousand, and then there's the whales, which are a hundred thousand plus. <laughs> um, and you know, with crypto, it has to either be food-related or fish-related somehow. So somehow, this is the terminology we came up with. So, uh, and then we're giving away up to a hundred thousand dollars to incentivize those people to participate in the trading competitions.
1: I love it. Okay, I will let you go. I really want to thank you for doing this, Hayden Hughes, the co-founder and the CEO of Alpha Impact. I'll look for the token launch as well. Impact, yeah, you said? Yeah. Makes sense. Good stuff. Thank you again for doing this.
0: Awesome. Thanks so much.